If we have not met, my name is Drew. Would love to meet you at some point and uh, just thrilled you're here as October kind of moves to an end and I was thinking we're about five or six weeks away from Advent, which is crazy, so time goes quick. And right now we're in a, a teaching series right now, walking through and looking at some of what we feel are the most important words in the New Testament that we kind of need to get a hold of. Um, if you've been around for this, you know that there are a lot of words that we just assume in our moment we know what we're talking about, you know, Bible kind of words, and realize that sometimes there's a bit of a chasm in between when they were written and what we kind of think of them now in our present moment. And so this is very much a reclaiming time. The fall for us is a, a reclaiming time as a church community just to look at some things that should ultimately at its core shape us, not just as individuals, but as a community of people in what it means to follow Jesus. In particular, around words like worship, what we just throw around words like worship and maybe not fully know what we mean, or gospel, or salvation. And last week we looked at the word faith. What does this word faith mean in its actual content, on context? We hear it all the time, what does it mean? Today we're gonna look, I know I use the word important a lot, but this is, I think, a, a massive concept and understanding and a, a massive word in the New Testament that we read, and it's not used a lot in our kind of modern vernacular. It's the word righteousness, right? Righteousness. It is not a word that you and I would use much. I remember growing up on Ninja Turtles and the word righteous was used a little bit. Anybody, any kids from the early 90s, late 80s? Come on, somebody. Um, Nujay Gupta, he puts it like this. He says this. He says, I'm kind of disappointed that we don't use this word in English anymore. Not because I want America to be more religious per se. I'm not nostalgic like that. I'm disappointed we... I, sorry, I'm disappointed because we actually could use a single word to describe someone who innately does what is good right out of the purity of their heart and care for the other. Gupta says, I'm disappointed that we don't actually really, in our context at times, have a word that encapsulates what it means to do good. And so we're going to take some time this morning, and if you want to open it up in your Bibles, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3 is the text we're going to look at this morning. But as you know in this series, there is some Old Testament con contextual work we need to do to kind of make this come alive for us. So not, instead of just importing ourselves into Paul's language, Paul's language was shaped deeply by the Old Testament especially around these words, justice and righteousness. So the tension is, we're looking, I wanted this week to look at the word righteousness, but you cannot actually do that on its own. Now, some of you are reading the book, um, Words of Life by Nijay Gupta, and uh, reading along with us. His first chapter in the book is on righteousness, but if you know and have any kind of framework from the Old Testament, you know that these words, justice and righteousness, are always used, uh, oftentimes used together. And there's a, a sense of deep meaning when these two words, and we're going to talk about this when they're used together, that then helps frame the word when we get to the New Testament. Make sense? So justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness. Before we look at these words in the Old Testament, though, one of the things we need to be reminded 
is that in the Old Testament, the story and the language is overflowing with a few things. One is commands concerning the poor. Over and over, commands concerning the poor. Two is blessing on those who serve the poor and marginalized. So tons of commands concerning the poor, blessings on those who serve the poor, And then one thing that we don't like to talk about kind of in our moment is the overwhelming emphasis at times in the Old Testament that there are consequences for not serving the poor and the marginalized. Um, Theologians call uh, this the trifecta, these, these three groups of people that often come up in the Old Testament, the orphan, the widow, and some of your Bibles, maybe in the NIV, use the term foreigner or uh, a legal immigrant, maybe as we know in our moment, over and over, the scriptures are talking about the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner as these communities and groups of people that Israel is called to be postured to with their, with their lives. And if you know the story of Israel, it's quite complex at times because they have this calling from Yahweh to be love and light where they are. And how does that go? <laughs> Just read the story. It has its moments where it's good, but you t- turn, t- tend to like read these stories of beauty and then flip the page and it's, it's upside down. And so we want to keep this understanding of the call to the poor and the marginalized before us because these, this term and these ideas of righteousness and justice deeply connect with God's heart for the marginalized. Make sense? Two words, justice and righteousness. Let's look at each one, and by the end, you'll just absolutely be Hebrew scholars. That's a lie. That's not true. The word justice in uh, the Old Testament and the Hebrew language is this word mishpat, mishpat. Um, The psalmist actually, in the Psalter, it says in Psalm 38 that God loves justice. So much so that this word mishpat in the Old Testament is used 400 times throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Some people translate it as plan or verdict, judgment or justice. One of the things we know when you read in large scope is that mishpat is actually the nature and character of God. And that this word comes into play in the, in the framework and reality that for Israel, things had gone wrong, right? God had this vision for them to be this people of love and light to the people around them and to bring shalom and restoration to the people around them. And again, we know this story goes kind of backwards. So this word comes into play when things have gone wrong, that there's a sense of rightness that needed to come. And this is what Mishpat means. Now, in our framework, and I know we have uh, some lawyers in our community, we think of justice primarily in judicial terms. Come on, up the back row, let's go. We see you, we love you. Um, You know, oftentimes the word justice in our moment is simply judicial, right? We think of it in judicial terms. And while there's a layer of that to this word mishpat, actually deeper is that this word embodies relationship. Mishpat, uh, one, one theologian says that mishpat can be defined as the restoration of a situation or environment so that equity and harmony are promoted in the community. So it's more than just 
justice as we know it in a judicial sense. There's relationship and order to it. It it is setting things right. It is right order. And just remember, when you pick up the Hebrew Bible, right, you read Genesis 1 over and over in the rhythm of the writer's language, we see a sense of God ordering things right. And sin and rebellion send things into chaos and disorder. And what justice or mishpat does is it's this image of bringing, bringing to order what is in chaos. It's also used to describe a person, and you'll see this actually if you read in the Old Testament at times, it's also used to describe a person who is given a plan to create a physical space for God's presence. So there's a couple moments in the Old Testament where they actually consecrate space for God's presence, and that is mishpat. This image of like the preparation and that kind of coming together as a way in which right order for God's presence to come. It also has to do again with individual rights and legal governing uh, in the society. And so there are lots of layers to this word mishpat. Now justice in our moment is a word that we use more and more, right? And especially, you know, over the last several years that the, the emphasis of social justice in our moment and in our culture has grown. But it's important to understand what's happening in the Old Testament and in Israel so that we understand what Paul is actually getting to when he talks about that. So justice, mishpat. Then we have this word, uh-oh. Then we have this word righteousness. Sedekah in Hebrew, righteousness. And not only does God love justice, God loves righteousness. Righteousness is the nature and character of God. And what it means in its context is God's standard. Doing and living, this is what it means, doing and living inside of God's standard. Now, the tension is, when we think about righteousness, we kind of play words like these off a little, where we think there's like a heavy burden to live up to God's standard, right? How, how many people do you know that are kind of outside the way of Jesus, if you were to talk about like right living or righteousness, would kind of see that as a burden because you're trying to kind of live up to God who has this standard? That's actually not what the word means. It means living into the nature and character of God. It means living under his rule and reign in right living. Now, I was driving in this morning trying to kind of get this concept in my head, and it got me thinking about like a home. So I have four little humans that live with me, and they're wonderful, and I have five humans in total that live with me. Um, So she's included in this, I guess. But we are trying, right, in our home, to have a way in which all of us understand that all of us represent the family unit, right? It's not like a weight on the shoulders. It's not having to live up to mom and dad standards or, or husband and wife type of standards. It's, it's a, a leaning or living into. So we often say, hey, just remember, like when I'm, when I'm out amongst people, I represent this family, and when you are out amongst people, every action and thing you do, just remember that it's not something that you have to live up to, but live into the reality of you represent us as as, as a community, as a family together. And I think that's a, a helpful way of understanding what tzedakah means. It's right living, but it's not like trying to climb a ladder to God. 
You see Yahweh's presence in the Old Testament calling on Israel to live in his way, live into his standards. Zedekah is right, it does right, and righteousness, Zedekah, it makes right. You know, there's other times where this word Zedekah is used in the Old Testament. It actually means like saving action. The Old Testament picture of righteousness is actually attractive. You know, we talk about righteous and everybody goes, oh. no, no, no. Like for Israel and the true understanding of the Hebrew word Zedekah was you, we get to live under God's rule and live with our lives the outflow of his ways. You know, the scripture tells us what righteousness looks like. The scripture has all sorts of attributes of the righteous and people who are righteous. And it flows out of being under the rule of Yahweh. Just a few, just to remind us, even in the Old Testament, and Nijay Gupta does this in his book, he breaks down some things of what it looks like to be righteous. Purity of heart, a clean and clear conscience. Innocence, right? So this uh, unability to be accused of wrongdoing, beautiful. Fairness as part of this word, Seneca, caring about and holding to a just and fair standard for all. This is what this word means. So you have justice, mishpat, and righteousness, Seneca. Now what's interesting is they are used on their own all the time. Just, I mean, if, if only we could read in our English Bibles and just see in brackets that these Hebrew words are there all the time. Some of you maybe read Hebrew, you pick it up, you feel it in your bones. What's fascinating, though, is they're not just words on their own, and this is what's going to lead us to Romans 3. They are words all throughout the Old Testament that are used together. They're twinsies, right? Eighty times in the Old Testament they're used together. And what's fascinating is when you talk about Hebrew words being used together or joined together, what's fascinating is they mean something on their own, And then oftentimes they can mean something different when the two phrases are used together. And these twin phrases are supposed to elicit something in us as the God community in what they mean together. It's like using, I'm just trying to think of a framework for us. It's like using the word sick, right? And the word tired together, they each mean something. And then we use the, I'm, I'm sick and tired, right? Like a, a framework for us, some of you parents are like, I use this word every day. I use this tandem every day. These phrases together deepen the level of understanding of what the phrase is trying to say. And when we see kind of uh, justice and righteousness used together, it's eliciting for us um, the kind of response, again, for us as the Jesus community to see that it's a call of, yes, justice in the sense of um, righteousness or, or rightness or the world being made right, but it also combines this idea of right living together. Now, you see these terms all throughout the Old Testament. Then you get to Paul in Romans 3, and he uses now a Greek word, righteousness, to communicate with the church in Rome. Read with me. Romans 3, 21, it's on the screen. You're welcome. It says this, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. 
This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are, here's the word again, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did, this to de- uh, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate, again, his what? His righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, this word righteousness that Paul actually used here is dakusune, dakusune, and what Paul is doing here is actually taking the root form and bringing the word justice and righteousness together in a Greek word in his writing. Basically, it's used to translate, the, translate these two words together. Uh, and because... Righteousness is not often a word that we use in our moment, in our time, and in our culture. Probably the better word we would use in this tandem is the word justice. This is a word we know and grab a hold of and understand, but through this wordplay, the readers of Paul's letter in that time would have seen obvious links of Jesus' work in his atoning work of justification and their own righteousness and call to justice in the world. Let me say it again. A reader in Paul's day, because we got to push against this, especially with what has happened in the Protestant Reformation, where we have said we're saved by grace through faith, and what does that typically mean? The outflow of that has been, hey, you prayed a prayer, you're probably going to get to heaven someday when you die, so just kind of hang on until that time. The reality of this word, dakusune, is just an understanding that justice and righteousness, when they work together, it is about Christ's work of justification, but it is also the righteousness and call to be just and live just in the world in which we live. They would have seen that Christ's atoning sacrifice justified them, so Jesus' work working on our behalf and made them right before God, but they would have also understood that this act of reconciliation, they would have seen it as a demonstration of God's own righteousness and justice, a gift that enabled them, and I would say us, to love God and others rightly and justly. You following me? God's justification, his righteousness, his work, that does not leave us off the hook. The word has these layers of it does something in our lives as the Jesus community and as followers of Jesus to live justly and rightly. Now, brothers and sisters, how's that going for us? Right? Like just, as, like, just across the board. I know you. You're, you're good. We're good here at Praxis, right? But maybe that's a good question to ask along the way is, Instead of fire insurance, like justification or righteousness, and instead of like the impulse for this just to get me somewhere, 
there's actually a call for our lives to be, and we see it in the Old Testament all the way through what Paul is saying here in Romans, that our lives on display, something happens. We are now people that embed in our lives a posture of justice and righteousness. As the great Tim Keller would say, justice and justification are joined at the hip. I love that. You know, I I feel the tension, I don't know if you feel it, where it's like one side or the other. You have people that are like, we need to be saved by grace through faith. Absolutely, right? But I mean, this is it. This is the emphasis. The other swing of the pendulum is, well, it's about social justice, right? It's about caring for the poor and caring for others and our posture as people towards others. My answer to that is, yes. These things are deeply tied together at the hip. And so when we read the word righteousness, in our Bibles, or we talk about this word, there is the, impl- there is the understanding and the implementation of this word as what, of what God has done in his righteousness and the call for our lives to live rightly and justly. Nijay Gupta puts it like this. He says, the New Testament is all about righteousness, and righteousness is not religious piety. It's about honesty, transparency, personal integrity, faithfulness, and relationships, justice, seeking in the world, and compassion and mercy towards the other, especially concern for the marginalized in society. So what does this mean for us? Right, so we understand, we, we see how this word is used, the Old Testament, the New Testament. I love how one person put it like this, it is right seeking, right seeking in an unjust world. If you are a follower of Jesus and have experienced a type of justification where you are made right with Jesus, the outflow of that, brothers and sisters, welcome, you're signing up without a clipboard passed around, right, is entering into right-seeking in an unjust world. We are these people now because we are being transformed by the way of Jesus that enter into everywhere we look, we work for right-seeking, we look and we join God in setting the world to rights. Now, ultimately, will he do it? Yes, right? The vision I get sometimes, and one theologian talked about this, you know, when our kids were younger and like Heather would be baking, the kids would kind of get their fingers into the, to the baking goods and kind of help her, but it was ultimately her doing the work. And what do the kids think? They're like a part of these, like the cookie and cake making, right? They had a part in it, We lean into God doing the work, but there is a sense where we need to attune our hearts and our lives. When we read righteousness, it is not just what God has done for us, but it is a type of right living and joining him in setting the worlds to right. Gupta says again, transformed and transformative Jesus following righteousness is on a mission to right the wrongs of the world and to glorify God, to give glory to God. It is to join God in righting the wrongs of the world and glorifying him. And so you and I are called to righteousness and justice. We are called to love, justice, and righteousness. I love how Cornell West says that justice is what God, sorry, justice is what love looks like in public. Justice is what love looks like in public. And for some of us, we know we've been made right before God. The tension in this room is, will we be these right-seeking people? 
And guys, there's pain sometimes in that, in seeking what is right and good and just. And there's a deep sense, and I've, I've had to even repent this week, even in my own space. You know, the change is the last year we've been in where some of us are very busy. There's a lot of plates moving and going. And even thinking at our lack over the last year, and I'll take responsibility for this, in our own engagement for the poor and marginalized. I'll stand here before you and repent of that. We are called brothers and sisters into right seeking. Now, what's interesting this morning is, you know, this word has been on the docket for several weeks, thinking through what does righteousness mean in our moment. And... Um, randomly have a friend and some friends in the room. Some of you guys maybe remember Anna and Hartley who, Anna, how many years ago was it? Four or five years ago, yeah. Like a part of our church community while she was at Western. And Hartley is a youth pastor at People's Church in Toronto, but has a massive heart um, for missions, but also when we think about this rightness piece, is doing some work, and their church is doing great work in connecting with refugees that are new to the Toronto area. Um, just random how it, it kind of ended up this morning with Hartley here. I'm gonna get him to come and share in just a minute, but Hartley and I were talking about a month ago just about kind of new and creative ways that he is gonna share a little bit about in which trying to set up homes for refugees in the GTA and are trying to like actually start to till the ground here a little bit in, uh, in London and just seeing and looking for opportunities. And I thought, you can't talk about justice and righteousness and what this means for us without, with him being here, come and share for a minute. Would you come, man, and just share for a second? Can you give him a hand as he comes? And yeah. Give you this mic. You can sing a song after, too, if you want. Okay. Um, hey, thanks so much for uh, letting me come and share uh, through. And, um, there's a lot of ways that justice uh, could look in our lives. That God places uh, unique, um, uh, yeah, unique uh, challenges in our society and our world that, that we just feel passionate about, um, that God calls us to, to uh, be a part of the work of uh, justice. Uh, for me, uh, my life, uh, for my wife Anna, for our church, uh, supporting refugees is one of uh, one of the things that, that God has, has given us. Um, just this passion to uh, support refugees coming into Canada. And where this started for me personally was uh, back in 2022. Uh, the war in Russia and Ukraine happened. Uh, two weeks into the war, I was actually in Ukraine and uh, being a part of receiving refugees and, uh, and seeing busloads of women and children, and seeing um, just seeing the devastation, the loss, and displacement that, that took place broke my heart. Um, uh, and, and knowing at that time these women and children crossing the border were, were being trafficked. And, um, and I, I just remember just, just being so heartbroken uh, over what was taking place um, and, and the forced displacement that was taking place uh, in, in Ukraine and Russia. And then, and then we look all over our world and we see the same realities that are taking place. And, um, and it was just... Uh, um, and it's just heartbreaking. Uh, it's heartbreaking to, to uh, think through uh, refugees and, and people who have been forcibly displaced uh, in our world. And so, um, so that's a little bit my story and how God has just broken my heart and, and given me a heart for refugees. And so uh, now thinking through the refugee experience, those who get to Canada are lucky. Um, actually, statistically, uh, the average refugee that is displaced before. 
settle in a new place and have the community and have a new home and, and reestablish themselves is about 20 years. It's not like it's not like they moved to a new country and then they're up and running. Like it's over 20 years. There's a number of refugee camps in the world that we do work in, and, um, and people who are in their 30s were born in a camp um, and are in this camp where they cannot leave. Um, and there is no ability to work, there's no ability to have food, water, it's all given. And, um, and so this is happening all over the world. And so we have refugees coming to Canada, they are the lucky ones, they're getting here, they're moving to Toronto, but part of their experience in Canada, as, as all of us experience, uh, or many of us who, uh, who are dealing with housing prices and, and inflation, cost of living, refugees are coming with nothing. They, if you can imagine all that they've experienced to get to Canada, they're on their own. Um, there's, there's, no, there's, there's kind of three main issues that, that come up. There's housing, employment, and community. Uh, community, many of them are coming from a community culture. Um, they're coming into an individualistic culture. Uh, and so for them, it is, that is actually, for many refugees, the hardest thing about coming to Canada, and they do not want to be here because of it. And so for us as a church, we've had conversations, what does it mean to actually provide community for refugees um, and, and support them? The, the second one uh, of employment, uh, no one, at least in Toronto where we are, is willing to give opportunity for refugees, mainly because of sometimes a language barrier, uh, sometimes a cultural barrier. Um, but in our experience, refugees are coming. Uh, by the time they get to the court process and get their, get their uh, uh, refugee papers and their brown papers to go to work, they are the people who like want to work. They want to work 80 hours a week and like they're the hardest workers. Um, but no one's willing to give them work. Uh, but then housing. Uh, they come to Canada, and obviously, if you imagine housing prices in Toronto, they're crazy. Um, but in Toronto, landlords, probably in London, they need person last month, they need proof of employment, they need, uh, they need references. Well, no one's willing to give them work. They don't have person last month, they don't have a job, and that they have no references to leave the country. And so because of that, no one is willing to give them housing. Um, and so it's kind of this like cyclical pattern of just them coming to Canada, and never being able to get established because they're never able to find work, they're never able to find a home. Um, and we have a lot of refugees uh, who are now part of our church community. In a room this high, they, they live in this like shelter. Um, and if you've seen pictures of like uh, people who've been, like it's literally just like lo- rows of beds. Um, and all you have is a cot, just a cot. Um, and in a room this size, there'll be like 40 or 50 people just like sleeping at night. Um, and happening all over Toronto. Um, and so, a part of our church's response was, how do we, how do we, how do we support refugees coming in there, coming into Toronto? Um, and so, about seven years ago, we started a, a, a home model where we actually opened up some refugee homes, um, where uh, basically we support refugees to come in. We have a, it's a huge process, um, but uh, we have a refugee home where they have a home, they have food, and uh, we support them getting established. Now, in Toronto, the government, city, they, they try a lot of other models. Actually, in London right now, I just heard that they're, they're going to be building a building for refugees. Um, we've tried that in Toronto. It does not work. Um, and actually, the city is reaching out to our church and saying, hey, the only model we've seen that work is yours. Can we keep giving you money to open up more homes? Um, but the issue for us is that we're a church. We don't have the capacity to be this, um, this, this uh, um, refugee organization. So... Uh, you know, the, the part of the challenge is when you put all of these refugees into one building in a underdeveloped part of the city, um, or on the, a side of the city that is, you know, already like uh, stereotyped and marginalized, um, it's basically just ghettoization, um, and you're 
actually increasing marginalization, you're increasing stereotypes, you're increasing racism when you put all of these people who are not from North American contacts in a, in a place where there is less social services, there are worse schools, lack of employment, um, it just turns into ghettoization. Uh, so our model basically is, um, is that we uh, are basically wanting churches to say yes to receiving a refugee family or to receive a few refugees um, into their community, uh, to love them, support them, whether that's like with their kids, helping their kids, giving them pets and sports, or helping them get to the grocery store, helping them to find employment, um, and, uh, and also just uh, having relationships, sharing meals with them, inviting them into their home. Um, and so for us, that's what we've been doing. Uh, and one quick story of a friend of ours, Yassine, he came from, uh, he was, he's an Afghani refugee, about 25 years old, he actually had, uh, was forced to flee his country uh, because ISIS was rolling through his village, he lost his, he lost his business, he had, to, he had to flee, he comes to Canada, he came from a Muslim, he was used to be Muslim, he came to Canada, and he's like, I can't believe they're going to ISIS, after seeing the stuff that they did, and they, we welcomed him to our home where our church just began to share meals with him, uh, walked with him through this, the trauma and through this transition, uh, we were able to, able to find him employment as well. So now he's working, he's living in the home, and he's been discipled now by one of our um, uh, one of our church members who's just been sharing a lot of meals. And now he's placed his faith in Jesus, he's part of our church community, and he's doing incredible things um, in our community. And so I think one of the mindset shifts that I want churches to realize is that it's not just us giving, like us giving meals and serving in this way. The tremendous blessing that these people have to us is incredible. Many of them, and we open up our homes to people who are not Christians, they're, they're Muslim, they're Hindu, they're, um, they're, you know, they're not uh, part of any religion. Um, but they are a tremendous blessing to our community when we receive them. And so uh, for us, uh, my wife and I were in our church, we were having uh, dreams, because the issue of Toronto is that you can never get established. My wife and I would, were, you know, we're two work professionals, have education, and we can't even get established in Toronto. Uh, and so people coming in, middle, middle of life, or having no education, no experience, they will never be able to make it in Toronto. Uh, and so we've been having conversations of what would it look like to actually have partners or churches or communities in areas like London where it is a lot easier to get established. I know you guys are saying, thinking prices here in London are bad. They are getting bad, and I see that. But in comparison to Toronto, um, it's a lot easier for them to get established in a place like this. Um, and they're not going to be forced to be relying on charity uh, their, their whole lives. Um, and so just a vision of what would it look like for them to move them uh, here to, to London, to have a home and for a church community or multiple church communities to actually welcome them into their community uh, and begin to help them get established on, uh, uh, as a family here. And so uh, practically, uh, there, is a, there is a potential home that we, what we can actually open up here. Uh, but... Uh, Will, will require a church community to be willing to say, yes, we want to support this family. We want to support these two or three refugees coming into our community. Um, it's a model we've done. It's, it's worked. It's brought tremendous blessing to us. Um, and, uh, and, and that was even the point that, that you were sharing of when we actually engage in justice. There's it, it, uh, the second and third was the blessing of uh, being involved in justice work uh, for us in the community is so great. So, uh, yeah, that's the work we're doing. And um, we're not, I'm not necessarily asking your church to be a part of this, but uh, really almost just an application from what Pastor Drew was saying, that what is the justice work that God's inviting, inviting us into? Uh, 
um, is a refugee, maybe it's not, maybe it's some other word, um, but this is just something that our church has done, and we're actually looking for other churches to say yes to this, so whether that's, that is you guys or not, um, we're just thrilled for uh, what you guys are doing here. Also, last thing I will say, Aaron and I love this church. Uh, I hope you guys realize what a blessing this church is. Um, whenever we're in London, like, we, we're like, we want to come and back to this, like, this is the place we want to be, so, uh, yeah, so thank you for this Awesome. Thanks, man. Peace and peace. Appreciate it, buddy. Thank you. Yeah, and so some, even some of this work in the context of London, it's, uh, it's discovery. It's a little bit of discovery. Um, I thought with Hartley sharing, for some of us maybe in the room, there's an impulse. You know, we talk about theology. We talk about what these words mean, but where it hits the ground, right living and right order. Um, for some of us maybe in the room, you feel that. Please reach out. This is like um, obviously in very infant stages. I think for others of us in the room, maybe you know of people, right? Like if you're connected with other Jesus followers where you are having dinners and meals and just, you know, living life with people and you know of people that are bent and passionate towards this. Um, I really think this is a beautiful way um, in the sense of like establishing home and care and, and relationship and how important that is. That for some of us, maybe you know somebody who would be interested or know, maybe you're connected to other churches as we kind of think through what this looks like. There's not a lot of answers today as much as, um, I just thought it was fitting. Hartley walks in this morning, I'm like, okay, this is like justice and righteousness morning. Maybe God is up to something. Um, and calling us to be people, right, who join God in setting the world to right. We, guys, we live in the tension that every effort we, we, we do, we put every effort and energy into this. And we also lean into the reality that Jesus is coming and will renew all things. The hope for brothers and sisters in need and marginalized and in poverty is that there can be hope now as we lean and give support. But there is, this is what I mean. This is not just an escape from hell, guys. Are you catching the, catching the last four or five weeks? We have been so shaped in the Western world to give a proposition, hey, pray a prayer, escape the bad place, that it has left us void of hands and feet work in the moment until Jesus returns. I feel the tension all the time. Again, I, I feel homeless at times in my uh, theological space because I know a lot of people where it's just like everything we do, that's, that's how, you know, we just gotta do stuff. Well, I get that, 100%, absolutely. There's the other pendulum swing where it's like, well, we just need to be saved, right? Like we gotta make sure we're justified. Both of those things, yes. Um, sometimes I feel the tension of kind of living in the middle of like what God's justification through Jesus does for us. And there's a deep calling, brothers and sisters, and it would be unjust as a church not to call myself and all of us into this way of life. You with me? To live justly and to do this work of following Jesus with our lives, being the hands and feet of Jesus. And that looks different in all sorts of different ways, but trying to scratch the surface of what that could look like for you and I.
Um, I, I know I mentioned earlier, just before we come to the tables in a second, we're going to close uh, in worship and coming to the table. You know, we have been involved with Arcade and some different local things over the last couple years, and we do need help, um, quite honestly, and some headship in that, like helping lead and, and support that. And so if there's an interest locally as well, um, all of our team is bivocational. We've got a lot going on, and I, I don't mean that in the sense of like we don't care about these things it's just we would love to bring more people into the fold that could help us organize with some of the rhythms of that organize teams and get more people into that and then the other side too is and i appreciate what hartley's saying it's not just giving but i think one of the things i'm feeling the weight of too is you know in a smaller church community that has a very small budget each year and trying to like make budget and and you know care for the needs of here I would love and we would love to be in a space where we could do more uh, justice-wise and, and pouring our time, not just our time, but our resources into uh, many of the projects that come along. And I always feel the tension of like trying to live wisely in our own community, but then also exercise that, right? And so I just want to remind all of us in that space, you know, we travel light here to hopefully create lots of space for that. And that can't just be up to, and this is, there's no guilt in this, that can't just be up to a couple people. Really, it's got to be all of us joining in. And so even as part of our worship today, as you grow in trust with our own church community, that just remember, like, we would love to continue to, to cultivate that. You know, as we come to the table and we take the bread and cup in a second, Maybe part of it is, too, is ex exercising generosity. That doesn't have to be a, to our church community. Maybe it's the other things that are on your mind or your heart. But um, very important how these things interconnect. You with me? Love you guys. Love being a, a part of this community. Thank you, Hartley, for sharing. And when we get these words right, right, what does righteousness mean? The call for our lives to live right under the king. It's important. So stand with me. The table is open this morning and what more or what better could we do as a response to Jesus work than to come to the table and I just want to call us you know sometimes there's different postures at the end of a teaching sometimes it's towards repentance uh, self-reflection I want to uh, call us to the table today in joy in reverence of God's love um, in, in an expectation as we take the bread and cup together this morning that we are joining him in setting the world to right. And every action, every prayer, every lyric, every walk to the table, every conversation, I believe all of it comes together to, to do this. And so don't underestimate even here this morning you know, your conversations with people, your worship, your singing these songs, your reading the Psalms, you walking the aisle to grab the bread and cup, you taking that, you coming this morning with your life. Don't underestimate what God wants to do in that. So the table is open. Let's walk with joy. Guys, lead us, and uh, we'll close our morning this morning by taking this together. Join me.